Welcome to another distinct nostalgia by MIM. More than a podcast. We return to our occasional Comedy Writing Legends series now on Distinct Nostalgia. You can already hear interviews in the Distinct Nostalgia archive with Marks and Gran, who wrote Birds of a Feather and Goodnight Sweetheart, as well as Jan Etherington, who was behind the 90s hit ITV sitcom Second Thoughts. Now it's time to hear from someone who created a really iconic character. David Renwick was the man behind Victor Meldrew, played by Richard Wilson, and the delightful One Foot in the Grave, which lasted for an amazing ten years. We'll be hearing all about that later, but in the first part of a two-part interview with David Renwick, we take things back to the very beginning of his comedy writing career, which included penning some of the most memorable two Ronnie sketches and working with David Jason long before he landed his parts in Open All Hours and Only Fools and Horses. So relax now as David joins Ashley to reminisce about his amazing career. David, great to talk to you for Distinct Nostalgia. And we're doing a series of programmes with um, prolific writers of comedy. And uh, obviously, we had to talk to you about your um, great career and specifically, of course, One Foot in the Grave, which is uh, one of the probably one of the best comedies that's been in probably the last 50 years, as far as I'm concerned. But let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning, shall we? Tell us a bit about how we all started for you, how how you got into all this business. Well, oh, gosh, well, we're, we're going back into, um, I suppose, my grammar school days when I, I mean, I'd always been interested in just sort of, I suppose, creating things. I used to be very into um, DC comics and in my childhood, and I used to draw and create and write my own um, superhero comics in drawing books. I did all that sort of stuff. And I used to write my own schoolboy stories that were inspired by Jennings and Billy Bunter. These were things that I read at, you know, when I, in my, in my childhood and somewhere around, I suppose it was the sort of mid sixties. I started um, enjoying the comedy that was around in those days, which was um, things like um, Pete and Dud. Uh, not only but also and and i'm sorry i'll read that again which was a very sort of seminal influence to me and um greatly enjoyed by all my classmates at school and uh them talking about well, 1967 probably somewhere around there the frost report that was also around um and uh, i actually organized school trips to some of these radio shows and we went to a frost report recording as well we went to um a recording of python in the first series it was the lumberjack episode we were actually in the audience for that episode um so that was all a lot of fun and you know i just remember going into the tv center and seeing you know these studios just you know with all the overhanging lights and the and the you know the magical world of comedy make-believe and thinking you know how great would it be not just to do this but to do it for a living you know to actually get paid for it so I was around that time of sort of writing my own sketches and uh, actually whole half hour sitcoms, which are all dreadful, I'm sure, absolutely terrible. But um, that's where I started sort of dabbling in it. And I left school. I didn't go to university. I left the sixth form, sixth form college after my A-levels um, 
1970 and joined the local newspaper as a reporter. Um, and I was, I'd been sending stuff off and getting uh, immediate rejections for all kinds of things I'd sent into various television companies. And um, um, I remember I sent some uh, sketches to John Cleese um, around the time of I think it was the second series of Monty Python um, and got a very nice letter back from him saying that they couldn't use them but they did show promise which was you know, like a, um, a sort of a voice of God really kind of you know giving me this endorsement um, and encouraging me to continue um, the, the first time that I sent something off and it wasn't just returned to me um, was a batch of sketches that I sent to David Hatch, who at that time was a producer in um, BBC comedy. He was a producer and cast member of I'm Sorry, I'll Read That Again. So I kind of knew of him very well. And um, he just said, I'd, I'd quite like to hang on to these sketches and see whether I can use them somewhere. And from that um, evolved my my sort of working relationship with him and BBC radio. Um, he eventually did use one or two of the sketches in a program that was primarily written by Peter Spence, who did to the manor born. Um, and, uh, the show was called the next program follows almost immediately. Um, it starred David Jason and, uh, Bill Wallace and Denise Coffey. Um, that's where I first met and began my, lifelong friendship with with david jason although i've never actually written a great deal for him since then but um um and it sort of it, it sort of gradually um spread on from there when that series finished they he said do you want to try writing some sketches for week ending which was the late night um topical review show that he was also producing and through that i got to meet other writers uh, John Lloyd, Douglas Adams, um, and Andrew Marshall and John Mason, who were two other contributors to Weekending. Uh, and I got together and um, uh, created a, a show called The Burkis Way for Radio 4, which ran for, uh, I don't know how many series, I think it was about 47 episodes. That's a lot, isn't it? That's a lot. What was that about? What was The Burkis Way about? It was just a sketch show. It was uh, fairly shamelessly sort of Python derivative, I think, but um, uh, with probably a lot of cheaper jokes in it. Um, and uh, and you also yeah, wrote for news news headlines as well, didn't you, on Radio Two? Did you yes, um, I think moving from Weekending to Headlines was the uh, sort of little bit of a turning point because Weekending obviously didn't have an audience. Um, it was just recorded in a basement studio pp1 at broadcasting house and um a lot of it was clever rather than funny whereas writing for roy hud in front of a, a live audience at the, the paris um kind of disciplined you to try and you know actually get laughs to draw laughs from the audience so you had to um you know, had to come up with stuff that was sort of palpably funnier um so that was a, a, a quite a good discipline and um i wrote i think for the first four series of news headlines and um that took me up to about i think 1978 or 77 78 something like that 
And you also wrote for Kenneth Williams as well, didn't you, at one point? Well, Kenneth Williams was a was just one of many sketch series that were being produced by um, uh, David Hatch and Simon Brett and the, the producers of the time. And once you got into that sort of um, uh, sort of coterie of writers, you were invited to you know, chip into you know all manner of shows that they were. Um, that were coming out of the department. Um, so I wasn't specifically writing for Kenneth Williams. I, th- I think the show was, was a show called The Betty Witherspoon Show, which was, um, I don't think it will go down in history as one of the sort of classic comedies of, of its day. Um, but it was, um, it, it took in material from all sorts of sources. And um, yes, I probably got, half a dozen sketches on that i can't remember now to be honest there was a there was something he called I and mean, this is one of his phrases things he used to say a lot wasn't it oh get on with it he used to say oh get on with it wasn't there a show called oh get on with it there may well have been yes i mean they were all they were just titles and just excuses for you know kenneth williams to do a lot of his voices in different sketches Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, but great stuff. I mean, great, you know, sort of to be able to cut your teeth doing that kind of thing at that particular point, wasn't it? Mm. Yes. Um, I I mean, I uh, that took me through my sort of four years of working on the newspaper, um, and which was not a job I really felt I was sort of cut out for in the end. I mean, I did, I moved from um, reporting, all round reporting to... Um, to sub editing for about the last nine months I was on there and um but I was kind of getting more and more stuff on to weekending by that stage and I just thought it's sort of now or never really I either sort of make a clean break with my day job and um and you know take this up sort of professionally for a living or or, or I or I don't you know I've got rather than just keep dabbling in it um so I made that decision in in 1974 um and so i left the newspaper and that was also the first time that i began to get one or two little quickies and one-liners onto television shows um shows like the uh ken dodd show and the two ronnies and dave allen shows that were in the market for um submitted material from from all sorts of writers but it's not but it's not easy is it because you know i'm thinking about it i i started off as a newspaper journalist and actually similar to you i spent four years at a newspaper and then eventually got myself into into radio and broadcasting and mm. four i mean four years was enough actually I, I did everything i did crime reporting i did i did the, you know, did everything you could think of i mean it's a great it's a great grounding in a way yeah it sounds very much like my experience it, in court great. reporting and, yeah yeah. And, yeah it's great it is great experience but but then to, to but it but is at least it's a regular job if you're then giving it up and, and you're living off the whole thing of you know sending the odd um comedy sketch in or whatever you, you, you don't earn a lot of money at that do you i mean basically it's not something you could it's not very lucrative is it at the beginning no well it wasn't very lucrative being on the newspaper to be honest but but of course um and you're encouraged every week to bump up your expenses that's where you made you know, most of your money i mean i was far too honest but the uh, news editor would come around saying what do you mean <laughs> do you mean by putting in this um this poultry claim for expenses so it's making the rest of us look dishonest which of course they were 
<laughs> you had to uh, inflate your list of expenses in order to supplement your um you know your official salary my memory my memory of newspapers was that it was it was, <laughs> it was largely um drinking i mean my i i worked i worked on some weekly papers and and i had a couple of editors who had been had worked in the you know nationals and kind of thing and they loved holding court in the pub basically so yeah. most of what you ended up doing was spending half the week stood in the pub getting <laughs> getting bleary eyed you know what i mean yeah particularly when i went on my block release courses to we went to harlow um, college for to, to take um take this journalism course the NCTA um, you're talking about that's NCTA. right yeah 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 and um I remember little Richard Littlejohn was on the same um, year as me and <laughs> I first came across him. And one or two very unpleasant <laughs> repercussions to some drinking sessions at the Harlow Playhouse, I remember, with uh, the cider was flowing. But yes, the, I mean, the, the, uh, I think the first sketches that I got on radio were th- paid at a rate of £3 a minute. So... Um, if you had an eight-minute sketch, you you know, I think I got £24, which was probably easily as much as I was getting paid a week on the, the newspaper at that point. So it was uh, not unhealthy. And I was still living at home with my parents at that point. So I had no real um, you know, sort of heavy outgoings. Um, and I just thought I would, you know, see how see how it went for, for a while. Because I'd always got – I had actually – passed my nctj um you know i got my proficiency certificate so i knew i had got that to fall back on if i had to go back into journalism the actual um uh the knowledge of it's never and i have i have used it over the years and uh, but of course who who does shorthand anymore it's all just recorded isn't it i mean that's not absolutely absolutely so you're, you, you you developed a partnership with Andrew Marshall how did all that come you mentioned Andrew earlier but how did because you did quite a few things with Andrew did you did, was there something special about Andrew that you you and you, you and him managed to sort of quite a good chemistry together I suppose it, that was the case yes I mean it, we um as I say there was a whole group of people in the, in the um used to turn up in the conference room um, first of all, at Aeolian House and then Grafton House, where the BBC was based. Um, and I suppose we, we sort of gravitated to each other to some extent. I mean, I've, I've often said this, I don't know how much truth there is in it, that we were, we were both um, rather exceptionally non-public school, which, which applied to most of the other writers who were there. I don't know whether it was all of them, but at the time during the period that we were working there um, and, and all very nice. They were, I mean, we, you know, got on like, but I, that's where I sort of first became aware that, um, you know, I was one of the few that didn't have that cultivated cultured voice that everyone else seemed to have in the room. Um, and um, Andrew and I were both, were both non-public school, both sort of, um a bit like the two ronnies um always cite that the way they sort of drifted towards each other on the frost report because obviously most of the um the the writing team and the rest of the performers on on frost were were sort of varsity and all university educated and they weren't um so i don't know whether that was a factor but whatever it was we ended up just sort of chipping in ideas together and um I think it was Andrew originally who did suggest that we um, kind of pulled our resources and tried to see if we could write a pilot together. 
And so, what was the what was the first, what was the pilot you wrote together? Then, what was the first thing you did together? We wrote um, something for David Jason, who was uh, who was around at that time. Obviously, we were writing for him on Weekending, and he was. Uh, people had obviously spotted his talent um, within the department and knew that um, you know he was a kind of star of the future. We wrote something called The Curse of the Jasons, which was again really just an excuse for a half hour comedy of uh, sketches and it was it was recorded it went to pilot with david taking a central role and i think simon williams was in it a couple of others didn't really work turned down by the well actually it's turned down initially by the bbc and asked us to have another go which we did so we recorded another um completely new script with Jonathan Cecil and Susie Blake, I remember, was in it. Still didn't get picked up. Um, and then I got, actually, I had a, I had a, um, a brief collaboration with another writer called David McKellar, uh, who was one of the ex-Frost uh, Report writers. It was a sort of generate, writing generation above me. And we wrote a series for Harry Worth, 13 episodes, so that was quite a long stint and then it was just after that that um andrew and i did the burkis way with uh, john mason although john mason sort of dropped out after the first series so what was it about andrew then that you think um what why did you you know because it's always interesting to know about partnerships and i know i know it's a long time since and you you, know, you one foot in the grave you did on your own was but you know what what was it about that partnership because i always think actually I always think it'd be quite difficult. I'm one of these people, I write a lot of things because obviously in the job I do, but I always think it'd be quite difficult to, to double up with somebody. I'm not sure I could uh, share the spoils. How did you? How did it work with you and Andrew? Yes, I mean, I find it harder to imagine now. Um, having um, written, you know, for, for so long, 20 years now, on my own. Um, actually, more than that. Um, but... Um, well, we never we never wrote together in the way that I know some uh, writing teams um, have done. Um, you probably found this out with the other um, couples that you've spoken to. But, I mean, our writing process was that we would meet to discuss everything and talk it through at great length and then peel off separately to write individual sections scenes sketches whatever it was and then bring them together and then talk them through again um make whatever adjustments and amendments we felt were um appropriate and then i tended to be the sort of collator who would sort of put it all together um if it was a you know half hour script as opposed to just a sketch or something but I mean, I'll your, your your first bit. I suppose it's just really wavelength is the thing that brings you together. It's it's having exactly that same sense of humour. Um, you know, all our uh, the things we admired and uh, that inspired us in the first place were were you know pretty much identical. I think, um, and so we were able to you know kind of think as one person comedically for for the most part. I mean, what doesn't work, I think, is if you're rather stating the obvious, if you've got, you know, different senses of humour, that's not going to get you very far. 
Is this right? One of the sketches from that series you did the Burkis way ended up in the two Ronnies. Was it the mastermind sketch? That that was yours, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, that was that was originally um, uh, a sketch on Burkis um, that I did, which was the same premise, um, answering one question behind each time. Um, it was a shorter version. I think it was, well, whatever year it was, 1980, I think it was, when I was, by that stage, I'd been commissioned to write so many sketches per series for the two Ronnies. And as often happened, I was sitting there thinking, you know, what the hell do I come up with next? Racking my brains for <laughs> for some kind of comic premise. And then something drew me back to that and thought, I thought, well, maybe I'll, Maybe I could dig that out and just rewrite it. It was all completely new jokes. And, uh, and you know, that became what it was. I was really not very confident in it at the time. I mean, after I'd written it, the day that I put that together, I, I was sort of so so depressed by it. <laughs> but it was delivered. It was delivered so well by them, wasn't it? It was, you know. They... Yes, they did it with um, their usual finesse and immaculate timing and um there were always a few niggles i had about the, <laughs> about the, the way that finally came out one was the the name which i always thought was a strange because ronnie barker would sort of um what they called tickle the sketches sometimes if there were little bits and pieces that he wasn't quite happy with and i never quite could understand why he why he introduced this name charlie smithers which was um the name he gave to the Ronnie Corbett character, who of course turns up in this immaculate pinstripe suit, <laughs> looks um, less like a Charlie Smithers than I could ever imagine. I can't remember what my original name was, but uh, anyway, that was a that was a Ronnie Barker invention. But he did that a few times. He introduced my name into sketches. There was one where he called his secretary Miss Miss Rennick, which didn't quite work because because I pronounced my name Renwick anyway. So and there was another sketch that i did um which was based on raiders of the lost ark which was um uh, ronnie corbett as the, the sort of harrison ford character and i i set up this rather elaborate terrible piece of wordplay really um which was a an a narration describing the um the last remaining example of the great orc in newfoundland canada um, when it died, the locals fashioned a, 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 a replica of it in purest gold, and it was said to have magical powers. Um, and men have killed to try and uh, um, to track it down to this day and harness those powers. And then up comes this um, this logo saying "Raiders of the Last Orc," which is you know cue big groan from audience. But so. Um, the way it came out in the end was that Ronnie Barker, for some reason, thought it would be very amusing <laughs> to no one but them and me to have a big book um, open. And the first page says uh, a David O. Renwick production based on sort of David O. Selznick. And then the next page, it turns to and says Raiders of the Last Orc. And then it goes into the narration. Which is so, so you've given the joke away before you even, um, you know, get into the description. Little things like that would occur. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> letting you into some of my sort of pet gripes that occurred over over the years. Well, of course, he fa- um, he famously had this thing, didn't he, where he was he was actually writing for the for the show, and it was revealed later on, wasn't it? The... Yes, that 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 story, which has been told many many yeah, times, yeah. because people are sick of it, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, all occurred before I joined. That all happened while they were doing the Frost shows uh, at Wembley. Yes, he wrote under this name, Gerald Wiley. I mean, even when I was working on the series at the BBC, um, he used to have uh, his own dressing room, and there would also be another dressing room for Gerald Wiley in the in the uh, in the corridor, which was where we all gathered after the show uh, for drinks and post mortems, and it was a bit like those party sketches they did on the Two Ronnies. Yeah. We all stand, stand around sort of talking about the show, and, but not as funny. Keep listening as Ashley's chat with One Foot in the Grave creator David Renwick continues on Distinct Nostalgia. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, then we would be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. It went head-to-head with Blue Peter for the affections of kids in the 70s. It was a magazine. So you open a magazine, you have lots of different things in the magazine, and we always did four or five. And a pie is a sort of surprise, and you never know what's going to be in it. Magpie was perceived as being a little bit more risque, and at its height was pulling in 7 million viewers in its 10 to 5 after-school slot on ITV. Just what was Magpie's magic? Yeah, it wasn't difficult to be more hip than Blue Peter. Blue Peter was a conservative show, so there certainly was an attempt to get some of the Blue Peter audience, but it was meant to be just a bit more interesting and a bit more lively. We've brought back three of the show's presenters for a special reunion on Distinct Nostalgia. We were more like the kids, you know, because we were younger, but there was also a feeling of us being a bit more radical, just a bit more in tune with the people that you know watched us we had seven million people watching twice a week that's douglas ray mick robertson and susan stranks back soon for a special magpie reunion only on distinct nostalgia more than a podcast go to distinctnostalgia.com or search wherever you get your podcasts Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM, and if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you. I love the two Ronnies. I thought it was great. I, I just I don't know what it was because I think you were either a two Ronnies person or a Morecambe and Wise person back in those days. Mm. For some reason, I was always drawn more to the two Ronnies. I, I don't know what it was. Something about. Uh, I think it was the variety more than anything, the difference of, you know, think, different things that they did, which... Um... Yes, there was that aspect to them. Um, I think there was kind of something for everyone there. And um, my taste was always for the, the, the more kind of 
interesting character-based sketches and rather more than the all the wordplay stuff which you know i wrote enough of and mastermind certainly falls into that category and ronnie barker did a lot of um sort of playing around with words which he was um, incredibly skillful there's no question about it four candles and things but the four candles is i think one of the reasons that survived so well is um is because the character characterizations of those two you know the the shopkeeper and the customer are so wonderful and you know sort of watchable anyway so you've got that in addition to all the great um jokes we'll be back after a quick break you still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping you feel me loading them up on it it only takes structure and and, you know just paying attention to the climate of the game yeah i mean so do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little you mean yeah yeah we all we all artists over here man I'm trying, oh, yeah, I'm trying yeah. I'm trying I'm oh, trying yeah. I'm trying I'm trying to get them on there yeah we all artists man we go you feel me we going to have this like Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right now. With this I gotta shit. lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I don't lie. play with it. Play with it. Nah. Take that shit sir. Yeah, you've got you've got Ronnie Ronnie Corbett being grumpy about it all, and you know all the rest of it. And- yeah, it is. It's glorious, all of that, and um, but that's why one of my favorite ever sketches is the squash sketch um, where oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Ronnie Barker has been you know, has defeated. Johnny Corbett <laughs> in his bloody Burton suit, written by Colin Bostock Smith, and it, I, you know I always think that um, is right up there with with all the others. Um, and Colin it, Bostock Smith, know, who created uh, or wrote um, Metal Metal Mickey, Mickey. Yeah, 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 and a lot of stuff for not lying cut news. Well, of course, he was writing the vast bulk of Weekending for a lot of the time I was there. I took over from uh, Pete Spence and um, very, very prolific writer. And I worked with him also on Bruce Forsyth's Big Night. We um, we were uh, both on the writing team for that, for our sins. So we, you know, we did a lot, a lot of those variety shows with a lot of different comedians. Um, there, was, there was so, so many shows around at that time. I mean, it's like a list of previous convictions, you know, Pam Air, well, Little and Large and... Yeah, little large. We just did an interview with Sid Little actually, all about all about his um, his work with Eddie because of course he died yeah. this year from from coronavirus, sadly. Um, but going back to the two runs, were you were you involved in any of the you know the little the little dramas, the little series they did? And the one I always remember was the the worm that turned with Diana Dawes. Were you involved in any of any of those? Well, no. After I mean, Ronnie Barker wrote all of those, the Piggy Malone, Charlie Farley um, series, and. Um, uh, and there was the Phantom Raspberry Blower, which he um, kind of developed from a Spike Milligan script. Somewhere around, I can't remember, it was probably early 80s, 83 or something like that, they decided to overhaul the format a little bit. And instead of having that serial in the middle of the show, because I think Ronnie was really kind of felt a bit written out. He didn't, you know, he was didn't really want to do any more of them. We decided instead to do one-off film items um, lasting anything up to ten minutes, which would close the show each week. Um, so that kind of took the place of the uh, of the the film serials. Um, I mean, they were still filmed with the same kind of production value and sort of loving care but they were they they were standalone stories each week 
and I wrote about ten of those, I think, over the over the years. Raiders of Lost Art was one of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was another one, Sunshine Boulevard, which was based on obviously Sunset Boulevard. I did a Quatermass parody called It Came From Outer Hendon. Um, <laughs> and, there was, and there was a thing called Tinker Taylor, Smiley Doyle, <laughs> which uh, sort of put the Alec Guinness character alongside Ronnie Corbett as Martin Shaw, which was quite a funny sort of combo. Um, so, yeah, lots of bits and pieces like that, that I did of different, different genres. I did one which was a sort of Roaring Twenties gangster thing and another was a Viking epic I did. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, the Burkis way, you tried to transfer this one to television, didn't you? Didn't London Weekend take it up or something at one point? Or... Yeah, well, it's, Simon Brett had produced the first couple of series. Um, uh, shortly after all this, he left television altogether to concentrate on his writing career. But um, he was poached across to London Weekend by Humphrey Barclay, who had who was part of the original Cambridge Footlights group with um, Cleese and everybody and produced, I'm sorry I'll read that again. This is how, you know, it all sort of comes full circle in my career. Um, and, um, and Simon's brief really was to set up a new show with the two of us writing, which was essentially really Burkis on television um, called End of Part One. Um, and we did two series of that, of seven episodes each, um, with Denise Coffey again and uh, Sue Holderness, Fred Harris. Um, um, that went out on Sunday afternoons, much to our disquiet, and was rather overshadowed by Not the Nine O'Clock News, which um, started up at the same time, and we were we were occupying kind of similar sort of territory in some ways in that we we ended up doing a lot of parodies which they did and uh, parodying the same sort of television programs um week by week um sometimes they would be parodying shows that we'd already done <laughs> about a month earlier or something with with no shame <laughs> it's as if they're it's as if they're saying well, nobody watches End of Part One anyway, so, so we can go ahead and do it. Um, but of course, you know, not that I cut news, which we did write for uh, one series as well, um, because of our relationship with John Lloyd. Um, you know, was was always destined to uh, prevail above uh, above our, our show because it, you know, just contained, you know, major stars of the future and you know, yeah. real sort of stellar talents uh, and uh, and it you know it just really took off how did in a you, way that we didn't how did it how did it feel at that point though because I, I mean I, we've been i've been through this in my uh, creative um career you know i mean uh, 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 you can be quite protective of things can't you but after a while you learn not to be in a way don't you it's it's a weird situation how did you feel about it at that particular time oh i'm sure there's a lot of bitterness and <laughs> And resentment went on um but um you know inevitably you you kind of want you know you feel aggrieved that your work may not be getting the attention sometimes it you know that it, you feel it warrants and i i think that you know there was so much of not like news that 
more on the strength of its performances than its writing quality. I mean, Richard Curtis said this in an interview, I remember him saying that, that um, there was a lot of stuff on there that he, you know, week by week, you wouldn't think was the greatest material. Of course, they, they um, uh, harnessed contributions from everywhere, you know, rather like the two Ronnies. I mean, people sent in stuff from you know all over the country to not like at least as well as professional writers they had commissioned writers as well but you know all those little quickies and things that came from here there and everywhere but it was just delivered and with such dispatch and such you know great comic um aplomb that um you know that's what carried the show i mean i've always said that um that any product is as good or bad as its performers really people don't laugh at funny material they laugh at funny people yeah um and you know it, hopefully that funny people performing funny material but if you've got funny material being performed by people who aren't funny or you know not very funny then it's really not going to work um whereas you know if you've got indifferent material being performed by funny people you'll get away with it because people tune in to see the you know the people i had this um conversation where i can remember i could see myself sitting down to lunch with with ronnie barker and ronnie corbett saying that that the reason people laughed at not the only reason but that people would laugh at their news items because they were delivering them um and obviously the jokes are funny but i said i could sit there at that desk and do those jokes with you know reasonable um timing and <laughs> inflection um but i wouldn't get laughs because you know they're not uh, geared up to laugh at me and you know and i'm not a funny person particularly whereas they are just inherently funny performers yeah. Ronnie Corbett. Ronnie Corbett found that quite difficult to 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 um, to accept. He said, "Well, I, I've always found that the most impersonal thing we do in the show." I said, "Yeah, but believe me, you know, there is still a twinkle there that you know, even though you're not in character or anything, you're just sitting there apparently as yourselves. You're still Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett doing these jokes, and that's why people that's why people laugh at them." Yeah. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. The only thing I couldn't deal with as a kid, I can now, but I couldn't as a kid. Um, I couldn't cope with um, Ronnie Corbett's monologue. Oh well, of course that's the one. That's the one I wrote, of course. And um, people, people have always said that over, over the years. I, don't, I, think I he, love I think the he... two Ronnies, and this, but the one thing I can't stand is when he's sitting in the armchair. <laughs> we go out and make a cup but, of tea. Then the point so is, I, I always made I... a point of saying, "Yes, well, that's the bit I wrote." <laughs> but the point is, not I to embarrass it. them, but just because I feel if I didn't say it, it would be dishonest. You know? the, the point is, I get it now. I think the problem was as a kid, it was a, it was a long drawn out piece, wasn't it? And it's sort of, whereas whereas the other one, other things were, you know, them singing and dancing and doing, you know, it was a bit quicker. And, and I think just just sitting there listening to his monologue, I, I often, at the end of it as a kid, I just thought, I, I really don't know what all that was about, you know, to me. Um, but then there's lots, yeah. of, there's lots of things you, you grow. I mean, it's like Tommy Cooper. As a kid, I really didn't understand Tommy Cooper, but I do now, you know what I mean? So Yeah. I, it's, a, it's all down to taste, isn't it? I mean, when I... Um, first started writing for the two Ronnies and I was just contributing odd jokes to the news desk um, I made a point of going along to the recordings you know 
um, just to sit there during the rehearsal period and meeting the other writers, meeting the producer and, you know, getting my face known um, just to kind of become part of the, you know, the scenery, <laughs> even though I had hardly anything on the show. Um, although gradually I got more and more on the show. But as I sat there every week and watched the, the Ronnie in the chair, it was always my favorite um, moment, you know, and Spike Mullins used to write it in those days, wrote the first 50 odd um, chair spots, I think. Um, and I always was such a huge, huge fan of that. I mean, there was just something about the style of that, you know, that uh, uh, kind of esoteric um, chat about the, you know, the producer and the, the workings yeah. of the BBC yeah. and everything that always appealed to me personally. Yeah. Um, no, I get it now. I get it now. It's, I just didn't get it then. I don't know, I don't, I don't know what it was. Um, well, let's move away from the two Ronnies because obviously uh, we want to talk about One Foot in the Grave. But before we do, you had some interesting successes in the 80s with things that probably, particularly one of them, probably wouldn't, people wouldn't understand necessarily now. And one of the, you, you'd built up this relationship, hadn't you, with London Weekend, and they commissioned a series called Whoops Apocalypse. Just remind us what that was about. Yes, well, that followed on from end of part one, which I say was we were not best pleased that the show went out in the sort of children's slot in the afternoon. Um, so we deliberately set out to write something as as adult as we possibly could. And um, this was 1980 uh, that we conceived this at the time of the Soviets moving into Afghanistan. So there was a a lot of global jitters about whether we were actually facing the prospect of a, you know, another nuclear war. So we decided that's what we would use as our subject matter, World War Three, or at least the lead up to World War Three. And we originally wrote with the pilot. The original pilot was written and commissioned by the BBC, by John Howard Davis at the BBC, then didn't really understand it. So we sent it back to Humphrey Barclay again. Um, who said he thought John Howard Davis was, must be mad. He immediately had loved it and um, encouraged us to um, to bring it to London Weekend, um, where he managed to persuade Michael Grade, who was then the controller, uh, to pick it up. And um, and uh, it was only ever going to be a, what, a single six-week series in that the Basically, the, the world went up at the end of it, so it was a lot of mileage after that. Um, but that was our kind of first grown-up series, really, for television. That was 1982, I think. Yeah, no, I do remember it. I do remember it. And I also remember that that period of, you know, everyone literally did think that the world was going to end, didn't they? That was that was the the focus was always on, you know, nu nuclear Armageddon was the was the big story in the news all the time, wasn't it? Well, there was a, so much going on, you know, there was the um, Solidarity um, Union protest in Poland and martial law being declared. And you know, every day there was some new piece of, you know, alarming news and developments around the world um, that you know, if you were nervy like I was, and, you know, I from a generation can remember the Cuba Missile Crisis yeah. just, you know, I was 11 at the time. Um, so that you know, it wasn't beyond the bounds of um, believability. In fact, what uh, what was slightly reassuring is that when we came to write the last episode, Andrew and I, we um, we found it became quite tricky in a way to come up with a a scenario that um, was 
a credible scenario in which which concluded with with um, nuclear war breaking out because it still seemed so unthinkable um, that it was hard to imagine one side or the other precipitating it. Um, so we we evolved a, a plot that sort of took care of all that in the end, but that was slightly reassuring. But of course, it was it was still a very madcap. We got unfairly compared to Doctor Strangelove a lot of the time. I remember. But it was a very different sort of humour, really. You know, there were lots of serious and dark moments in it, which I was very, very, very pleased with. But when we came to do the film, which we did um, a year or two later, um, producer called Brian Eastman encouraged us to write a film on the same subject. We tried to tone that down a little bit and probably toned it down a bit too far. But uh, the, the, I mean, the TV series still looks very much like a, you know, a, a kind of a studio-based sitcom, really, with a few filmed inserts. But I think there was a lot of funny stuff in it. I mean, the, you know, I was reminded of it very much recently when, when Donald Trump came out of um, hospital, you know, having miraculously recovered from COVID and uh, was talking about, um, ripping open his shirt to show a Superman logo on his chest and of course this is exactly what happened in our show um, Peter Jones who's the Prime Minister who believed himself to be Superman uh, was one of the was one of the jokes um, so this was kind of life imitating art really now before we go on to One Foot in the Grave which we will get to <laughs> you, at, at London Weekend you also did a series called Hot Metal now, yeah. this was about the newspaper industry. Was this a sort of a forerunner? Of, I mean, obviously, it wasn't the same thing, but obviously, a few years later, Channel 4 did drop the dead donkey kind of thing. But was, it, mm. was this the first sort of newspaper-orientated sort of comedy? Okay, if I, I can't remember any before that. I mean, I may be wrong, but uh, was this sort of breaking new territory in a way? Well, I, I can't honestly remember. I think there might have been one or two shows that well, I think they were probably gentler than ours. I think they might, while they may have been sick, situation comedies set up, I've got an idea there was a song with Diane Keenan or somebody. Um, I think there might have been one called Hold the Back Page as well. But while they were, the setting was a newspaper office, I don't think they um, embarked on them with the intention of, you know, satirising that particular world, which was our, of course, our main motivation was to, just get the knives into Fleet Street and in particular the tabloid press, which drove us absolutely nuts as it does to this day. And that's where our inspiration came from. I remember Andrew was was all for just calling it hacks and um, just really devoting the entire show to um, to an expose of the basic sins and you know um, outrages perpetrated by the press i said i thought it might be nice if we had also as a as a sort of balancing scene to the action um a strand maybe an ongoing strand serialized strand that that um that played up the more honorable side or potentially honorable side of journalism and uh so we sat down to watch All the President's Men, which I had always thought was a great film, obviously. And we introduced a character who was kind of counterpoint to, um, um, to, to all, the, all the excesses that were being uh, perpetrated by Russell Spam, the editor, and Twiggy Rathbone, the proprietor, and Greg Kettle, who was this um, unscrupulous reporter. And we had the young rookie who was played by... John Gordon Sinclair in the first series and Caroline Milmo in the second. 
who were uh, in in each series were on the on the trail of a sort of well, in one of them was a serial killer. I can't remember what the other one was. Oh, they exposed the um, some some political shenanigans. So we had uh, we had the we were showing the, the press in a good light as well as 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 a, as a bad light. Although it, obviously it was a bad light that provided all the comedy. Of course, and you worked with some great people down there. Of course, you did Robert Hardy and Jeffrey Palmer and and Richard Wilson. Of course, so there were some great great yeah. names there. Well, we had this notion that I mean, it was a very surreal idea that um, that the the newspaper, which had been previously edited by Jeffrey Palmer's character, um, was bought up by a new proprietor, this Twiggy Rathbone guy and that his first act on taking over the paper was to declare that um, they would have completely free um, editorial independence and then appointed an editor who was played by the same actor so it you know this was a sort of metaphor for his um, for the hypocrisy of his of that statement so effectively um, Robert Hardy played two parts he played the proprietor and the editor I'm not sure Jeffrey <laughs> bless him as wonderful as he was was ever entirely comfortable with that um so he declined to to um to to reprise his part in the second series so we wrote a slightly different character which um um which richard wilson played and uh two of us had already worked with him on the whoops apocalypse film which he had a part in as one of peter cook's cabinet ministers so that was kind of the beginnings of my relationship with Richard, really. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Like that helps us to neatly to get into one foot in the grave. Then David Renwick speaking to Ashley. In the next episode, learn how one foot in the grave came about as David concludes his chat with Ashley. And don't forget, you can hear another One Foot in the Grave treat here on Distinct Nostalgia right now by looking up our interview with Doreen Mantle, who played Mrs. Warboys. Find us at distinctnostalgia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast.